This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Peter Levine. Peter is an expert on treating stress and trauma with over 45 years' experience in the field. His somatic approach has helped countless individuals cope with a wide variety of traumatic experiences. He's the author of several Sounds True programs, including the book CD, Healing Trauma, and an audio program designed to help guide children through traumatic events called It Won't Hurt Forever. On September 20th, Peter will also be presenting the Healing Trauma Online Course, a step-by-step program for restoring the wisdom of the body, a course designed to teach you how to release energy from traumatic episodes and restore harmony and balance in the body. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Peter and I explore his body-based approach to trauma, trauma's connection to stress, and Peter offers some practical advice on how to deal with trauma that you may be experiencing even as you listen. Here's my conversation with a true pioneer, Peter Levine. Peter, you're an expert on healing trauma, and in the last 10 to 15 years, this whole idea that many of us have suffered from trauma and that it's important to focus on the healing of trauma, it it seems like this is an emerging idea that's now in the center of our conversation as a collective, whereas previously, back, you know, more than 15 years ago, it was something that was more hidden. People didn't really talk about trauma, and it was more of a kind of underground topic. What do you think has changed in the last 10 to 15 years? That's an interesting question, Tammy. Uh, I don't know if I'm... I'm probably more of a trauma monomaniac than an expert, but anyhow. (laughs) Um, You know, when I first started working with trauma was in the 1960s, and there wasn't even the definition of trauma as PTSD. And it's interesting. It really took, I think you're, I think you're fairly accurate. It's, it's really not until the last 10 years that um, trauma really became part of the, of the public discourse. Uh, why that is, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I mean, we have Oprah who was willing to talk about things like that on, you know, national television. Uh, then we had, you know, the reality of the, of the Vietnam vets coming. And then the, uh, you know, the acknowledgement of the widespread uh, incidents of sexual abuse, molestation, rape. And I think also what happened, I think it was a kind of a combination of the uh, Vietnam War and the women's movement, the international women's movement, because it, you know, it wasn't okay to, to put this kind of abuse on children uh, swept into a corner, swept under a rug. And I think together that these things kind of formed a wave, a force, so that 
when I started working with trauma, say in the 60s, there wasn't even a word for trauma, certainly not as PTSD. I was just looking at the effect that these overwhelming and threatening events had on people's lives and on symptoms, physical symptoms that they had developed. You know, it's, it's now a cultural zeitgeist. There's nobody who, who doesn't know about trauma. And I mean, it's not just in the, in the United States. Uh, when I've traveled and visited cert, certain so-called primitive tribes and talked to uh, chiefs, uh, you know, and for example, in South America, I asked them if they knew of the word sustus, which means literally fright paralysis or soul loss. It's the Spanish and Portuguese word. And the chief, this was of the Kranaki people, he said, oh, yes, I know of that. I also know of trauma. So it's sort of like in this really relatively short period of time, 10, 15 years, really, at the most, uh, my first book came out in, what, 1996, I think, Waking the Tiger Healing Trauma. And at that time, there was only one other book about trauma. And now, of course, if you go to Google and you Google trauma, you know, I don't know how many pages you, you'll come up with. So for whatever the reason, and I think the real, the deep underlying reason is that trauma is so important in all of our lives. It's not just in these so-called extraordinary events that that trauma can occur, but in many ordinary events. And uh, I first started to talk about that in the 1970s when I was really discovering that a lot of people's symptoms came in the aftermath of automobile accidents, sometimes even fairly minor accidents. In Germany, it's called Schleuder trauma, which means literally washing machine trauma. It's like you're in a washing machine being spun around. So I discovered that even relatively minor uh, fender benders could result in enduring symptoms and also uh, invasive medical procedures, which were quite common, and especially with children that were terrified, that were held down and overwhelmed. And again, these are things that happen to people on a routine basis. So it took a long time, and I think it really still has not even fully come into the lexicon of trauma or the diagnostic category of trauma, that these relatively ordinary events can result in debilitating symptoms. So in summary, there's hardly anybody on the planet that doesn't know the word trauma and doesn't relate to it because it is central to our lives. And it's not just a modern idea. If you go back uh, to, uh, well, to Ulysses, right, to the Odyssey, I mean, that was about trauma. The myth of Medusa, Medusa and Perseus, I mean, that's a myth about trauma. So this is something that affects all our lives, and people are interested in that. We should be interested in that. The question, of course, now is what to do if we're traumatized or expect that we're traumatized. Now, you've brought up many interesting ideas here, and and I want to unpack what you're saying, but let's just take it slowly, which is the first question I have is, how do you distinguish between a stressful event and a trauma? Well, you can't always distinguish. Now, a single stressful event, um, if a person is reasonably resilient, isn't going to affect them. But if people have to live in a whole environment, a climate of stress, for example, a child that's uh, born into a family where there's a lot of alcoholism and or, you know, yelling at each other or tremendous tension. Well, the children pick that up and this is an ongoing stress. 
um, uh, people who have lost their jobs, you know, and have families to take care of are, are under in a prolonged stress. So while single stress, such as even losing a job, won't cause a lot of distress, where this goes on for a long period of time, it really erodes our sense of self and our resilience. You know, it's a little bit like the, uh, you know, if you put a frog in hot water, of course the frog will jump out, you know, and save its life. But if you put the the frog in a beaker or, a, you know, a, a dish of cool, of cool water and then very slowly heat the water, the frog will die and it won't escape. So stress that goes on, that lingers, uh, can be just as debilitating as trauma, can actually even be more debilitating because we're not really aware of its effect on us. That's helpful. I think part of what I'm trying to get at is that as trauma has become now part of our zeitgeist, as you said, using that word, people use the word quite offhandedly, you know, just quite casually. And I'm curious to know when you think something really qualifies as a trauma. What's the the right use of, of that word? Okay, point well taken. You can go with the DSM, the book that is used for diagnosing all of the mental illnesses. And there's a very specific set of conditions. It has the, the symptoms have to last a certain amount of time, and there are a whole bunch of lists of symptoms like anxiety, intrusive images, going into, uh, you know, being flooded by emotional feelings, uh, being shut down and numb, and on and on and on. And so, you know, we can use that. But many people who are traumatized, what I would call traumatized, develop all kinds of physical symptoms, so-called psychosomatic symptoms. And um, now, psychosomatic symptoms are usually considered to be stress disorders. But again, this whole question about the spectrum of stress, and if something happens so quickly that, and we're overwhelmed and feeling helplessness, and the key here is that we don't re- rebound. So in other words, we can be exposed to the most difficult, potentially traumatizing events. We can be exposed to loss of loved ones. And if we're able to contact our innate resilience, we're not affected by that, or at least the effect dissipates over time. But if we're not able to rebound, then uh, we start developing symptoms, which could be called PTSD or can call them more generally trauma. Let me uh, give an example. person is in their car and they're waiting for a light to change and somebody comes up behind them and hits them. And, you know, of course, for a moment we're shaken up, we're disoriented, we run out of the car, we yell at the person, they yell at us and somehow we're able to exchange information then we go back to doing, you know, to our day. So we have a business meeting or something. We feel actually fairly uh, stimulated. It feels like we're really, you know, we're in an adrenaline rush. It feels like that we're really kind of on top of things. And slowly over the next few days, we start to develop all kinds of physical symptoms as well as 
outbursts of anger. So the children are doing something. They're leaving their toys on the floor. And we just explode in anger and, and yell at the kids. So what's going on here? Um, well, so we might go to a chiropractor, and the chiropractor tries to adjust the spine. And we get a, a temporary relief, but you know, but the pain is back the next day. And so what happened in that moment is something that happened that startled us, that frightened us, that we actually perceived, not consciously, as life-threatening. Because in that moment when somebody hit us from behind, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were going to be killed. So something which is a kind of an ordinary fender bender then is leading to this whole sequelae of symptoms. And what we want to be able to do is make a connection, okay, that these symptoms may have something to do with an accident that we had. Now, here's another thing that makes it more complicated. Sometimes the symptoms actually don't develop for several months, and then we really make the connection. So I would say a definition of trauma is something that overwhelms us, that makes us feel helpless, that makes us feel paralyzed. And it's something that happens to our bodies and our brains, something that happens to our nervous system, to our whole organism that doesn't unhappen. Something that happens to the nervous system that doesn't unhappen. Freud in 1912 or 1914 actually had a really good definition of trauma. He said trauma occurs when we are stimulated, and I would say overstimulated, when something happens where we're overstimulated, and this makes a breach in the protective barrier against stimulation, and I would say against overstimulation, leading to feelings of overwhelming helplessness. So think of it as sort of like a membrane, a imaginary membrane that surrounds us. And if there are arrows that come at us from outside, this protective barrier can protect us against that. But something happens that has, has more potency, more powerful, and it rips a hole in this membrane. And then we're flooded with these feelings, with, the, with fear, with, um, with rage, and we don't know really how to manage it. So something has happened that's thrown us into this, this dysregulated state, and we're unable to re-regulate and get ourselves back to equilibrium. So to me, that's the essence of what trauma is. That's very, very helpful. Now, Peter, I'm starting to think that you're a, a truly hyper-tuned-in person, because when you began talking about trauma, you mentioned invasive medical procedures and car accidents. And what's interesting is I'm here in the Sounds Tree studio. You're talking with us via Skype from Europe. And you don't know, but I'm here in the studio with someone who recently went through a very difficult car accident where his life was almost lost. And then yesterday, I had a strange dental procedure. And there was a moment within the dental procedure that fits exactly with what you're describing, meaning I felt this sense of overwhelm. Everything got really quiet. 
you know, I started calling on some very deep other resources so that I could try to relax a little bit. But there was this strange, frozen overwhelm. Oh, my God, I'm, I vacated. I'm not here anymore. Yeah, right. And, I'm out of my body in some way. Exactly. Because I was just completely freaked out by what was happening around yeah. me with yeah. the dental procedure. So first of all, just to acknowledge your tuning in to the people who are in the room here, and there's only three of us, um, yeah. our engineer, this guest author, and myself. And to recognize that what we're talking about here is very common, as you say, that probably most people have gone through some similar dental procedure or been in some kind of car accident and relates exactly to that place that you mentioned, that overwhelm, that sense of vacating. So the question, what do we do? What do we do? Well, first of all, one of the things that I've described in uh, several of my books and also with the Sounds True Healing Trauma book CD, that there are things – see, what happens when what you just described is something just comes kind of out of the blue and we're overwhelmed. And what happens generally is you – know, think about this. If something happens and you're really frightened, you go <gasps> – you take that immediate breath, your eyes open, your hands are out in front of you, and it's like the diaphragm is lifted up. And what happens is that we're not aware that that's what's happened. What we're aware of is the helplessness, is the vacating the body, uh, is the feeling of paralysis or the overall feeling of numbness and paralysis. And if we're able to go to our bodies and see where we've got the trauma locked. That is to say, we have to be able to learn to befriend the sens- our body sensations. Then what happens is there's a natural process that we move through these states and return to equilibrium. Now, one of the things that I think is really important and, and why I try to get this information out into the public is most of the time uh, when something like that happens, if there's somebody around who knows some basic tools and they can help the person who's had the dental procedure or the car accident to discharge the energy that's mobilized. See, what happens is when we're f- feeling threatened, We mobilize a tremendous amount of energy. This is the so-called fight or flight response. And there's another response that occurs when we are overwhelmed beyond the fight and flight response, and that's the freezing, numbness, shutdown. So when you were in the dentist and whatever happened, you felt scared. Now, I'm sure if there was a monitor that was measuring your heart rate and your blood pressure, there'd be a noticeable uh, increase in heart rate, increase in in breathing. But what we can do, because, you see, let let me go back one step. When I started working with people and realized how many simple events or how easily it was to become traumatized, and I realized also that the part of the brain that's affected by threat, by stress, is the same part of the brain that we share with all the mammals. Yet animals in the wild, that is, don't develop trauma symptoms. In other words, if a a rabbit is chased down by a coyote, 
and it escapes, it's none the worse for, for wear. Uh, because if animals didn't have that innate capacity to rebound from these threatening encounters, number one, they wouldn't survive because the next time um, they, would be, they would be slowed down, they wouldn't be as effective in evading a predator, and they would be eaten. So not only would the, would the individual rabbit die, but soon the whole species would become extinct. So I reason that there had to be really robust, innate mechanisms, both in animals and in humans, that take us through our encounters with extreme threat. And what I discovered was that animals and people have this innate capacity to shake off the threat and come back to equilibrium. Uh, I've just completed my latest book. It's called In an Unspoken Voice, How the Body Releases Trauma and Restores Goodness. I describe an event that happened to be about six years ago. I was uh, walking across uh, the street and a teenager went through the walkway. There was a truck there, so she couldn't see me and I couldn't see her. And she went out. She didn't slow down, and she hit me at about 25 miles an hour. I was thrown into the windshield and then thrown out into the road. Needless to say, I was terrified. I was dissociated. A man came by and announced himself as an off-duty paramedic. And he started throwing commands at me, don't move. And of course, when I heard his voice, I wanted to turn to locate the source of the command. And he yelled again, don't, don't move. So I was totally paralyzed. I was out of my body. And then, thankfully, a few moments later, a woman came and announced herself as a pediatrician. She said, I'm a doctor, actually a pediatrician. Is there anything I can do? And I said, yes, please just sit here with me. And so she sat down and she held my hand. I could smell a certain delicate perfume coming from her, which just went to my limbic system and let me know that I wasn't alone. Then having that and using my knowledge, my practice knowledge of how to work with these arousal states in my body, I was able to take my heart rate down from, 100 and, uh, from about 160, 170, down to 75, and my blood pressure from about 160 down to 120 in a relatively short period of time. And thankfully, I realized I wasn't going to get PTSD. Had I not been able to do that, I assuredly would have developed um, PTSD. So it's a combination of having somebody there for you and the ability or the learning to be with our body sensations and to know that whatever we're feeling, if we can contact it, it will change. So we have this, for example, this racing heart or a knot in the stomach. And we don't want to feel it because the feeling reminds us that we're of the trauma. The trauma causes the feeling, causes the sensation, and the sensation reminds us of the trauma. So we're kind of locked in this avoidance mechanism. But if we learn to contact in the particular way that I've developed in somatic experiencing through a process of what I call pendulation. Pendulation simply means 
that we're always in a rhythm of contraction and expansion. Our bodies, our moods, our thoughts, our perceptions are always in a rhythm of contraction and expansion. You know, sometimes we feel really completely at home in our bodies. Um, we, what we look at is clear and imbued with vibrancy and color. We enjoy making contact with other people and that, that gives us a good feeling. Uh, other times we're rushed, we're constricted. And, you know, people look like they're obstacles to us. You know, so we're in a state of contraction. So if we take some time to focus in on our internal state, we will notice, for example, that, that knot in the belly, that when we notice it, it actually seems to contract more. But then it lets go a little bit. And we experience a sensation, a quality of expansion. And when we're able to be with that, you know, generally with the help of another, and we go into a contraction, okay, and then an expansion, and then a contraction, but not as far, and a little bit greater expansion, and then again, a little bit of a contraction. What we do is we come out of the shock state, and our nervous system resets itself. Our body releases the trauma and feelings of aliveness and goodness, what I call the vitality affect, are reestablished, and we now are able to put that event in the past where it belongs. Okay, so Peter, I want to understand it from the inside out. A nice pediatrician is there with you saying, I'm here with you. You recognize that you need to lower your heart rate from you know, 170 down to 70. What did you actually do to decrease okay. your heart rate? Sure. I mean, I didn't try to decrease my heart rate. That's what happened as a result of what I did. Okay. First thing is I, I realized that I was out of my body. And, but at the same time, I could feel this woman's hand. So that gave me a point of reference to be aware of being out of the body and kind of surveilling this whole situation from as though from above. And then I came back into my body. Uh, and then I noticed uh, a movement of my left arm. And it was moving, it was as though it was moving up to protect my head. And then just at that moment, I got an image, a flash of the window as it it shattered in this, you know, spider web kind of thing when a window shatters because my, my shoulder had shattered the window. But my arm was coming up to protect my head. Now, that happened, and, but I wasn't aware of that, you see. But when I actually could experience it in these, these small, what could be called micro-movements, I felt in my body a sense of power. Yes, my body did what it needed to do to protect me. Now, if a person, for example, uh, is overwhelmed, let's just say by a rape, they may feel completely helpless. But in that helplessness, there's some little nucleus of some sense of power, right? of some way that we would have tried to protect ourselves. And also, if we experience that we can't protect ourselves in any way, that going numb and, and being helpless also 
might save our lives. So we really get to know that our body was on our side. Our body really did what it needed to do for us to survive. So then a little bit later, I felt a similar impulse in my right arm. And again, I could feel my hand going up and protecting my head from hitting the pavement as I was thrown onto the pavement. Then by doing that, my body started to shake and tremble. And it's this shaking which is really instrumental in discharging this high level of survival energy, this high level of activation and arousal in the nervous system, which had prepared me for flight or fight, but of course I couldn't fight or flee, right? I was hit by the car and thrown out on on the road. But allowing the shaking and trembling And along with the shaking and trembling came some very powerful emotions. I felt this fiery red uh, feeling in my gut and my diaphragm, and it just shot up into my chest, into my head, and into my arms. And I felt this red-hot rage, and I had the thought, how could she do that? How could she be so dumb and through the crosswalk? So, And then I continued to shake and tremble for a good 20, 30, 40 minutes, and the pediatrician stayed by my side as I discharged that energy. Discharging that energy and reestablishing the self-protective responses of my body, that's what brought my heart rate down. That's what brought my blood pressure down. So when I was in the ambulance and they you know, took my vital signs again, I was back to normal, and I was able to engage in a in a normal conversation with the paramedic in the ambulance because she was really interested in what I did, because she couldn't believe that when they took you know my my pulse and heart rate at the scene of the accident, that uh, you know a short time later it was back to normal. So I told her you know what I had done, and she said, "Huh." You know, I think in the hospital we make a big mistake because when people start to shake and tremble like you did, we give them a shot of Valium to stop the shaking. And I realize that what we're probably doing is stopping them from coming back to balance the way you did. So it's, it's allowing the body to do what it, it's built to do, what all animals do. Uh, I, for example, I uh, was telling my theory to uh, different uh, wildlife managers uh, throughout the world, and uh, the response of most of them was, yes, we see that. When we capture animals to re-release them in a different place, if the animals don't go through the shaking and trembling just the way you described, then they generally won't survive when they're when they're released back into the wilderness into the wild so it's this this the, again it's it's something that we share with all the animals because if we didn't have these innate mechanisms we wouldn't be able to survive now people who develop debilitating symptoms of trauma generally don't die and uh so Obviously, it's a little bit different than living in the wild. If we would become uh, limited by trauma in the wild, we would be, you know, certainly eaten up in a very short time. But in in society, we have more protection. 
but we're not protected from from the psychic anguish and the symptoms that that we undergo if we're unable to do what animals do in the wild which is to come back into into equilibrium into balance and incidentally when people have this experience uh kind of an interesting side effect of this if you like is that they tend to have experiences which are more uh which are frequently uh seen to be as uh, as spiritual experiences they have feelings of presence of connectedness of feeling a life energy uh sometimes after uh healing from a traumatic experience people's lives change in the way sometimes that you hear of what happens after near death experiences where their priorities change where they're much more open uh, to their families and uh, things that have meaning to them, and not so much caught up with the you know the rush a day, things that uh, you know that many people get get eaten up with, get swallowed by. Did that happen for you after your accident? Yeah, it did actually. Um, several of my friends had commented that they hadn't seen me as embodied and as calm. Uh, you know, before the accident. So, yeah, so uh, it it did make a difference. It did, did make a difference in me. And it also became the first chapter of uh, In an Unspoken Voice, <laughs> where I describe, you know, exactly what happened and the meaning of that for healing trauma. Now, you mentioned that the ambulance driver said, you know, if we normally would find someone shaking, we would inject them with Valium to help them you know, relax, calm down. And it does seem that this response, shaking, trembling, is not something that's culturally acceptable. And I'm curious about that. It seems, I mean, according to what you're saying, we'd be a lot healthier as human beings if we saw each other shaking and trembling on occasion and and considered it more normal. You bet, you bet. Well, you know, again, I mean, sometimes you can shake and tremble in ways that it doesn't, you know, that it's not productive. So again, I you know in my all of my books and so forth, I describe the you know the difference. But in general, could you briefly tell me the difference? Because I'm I'm curious well, about that. Most of the time, when we shake and tremble, it is our nervous system resetting itself, and it's almost always helpful when you're, especially in a situation where there's somebody there to be with you. You know the thing about trauma is that it really, really is important to have somebody there who is this kind of stable base. And um, I have some theories about why that is, some ideas about why that is. But mostly in our culture, as you were saying, people are frightened of of shaking and trembling because it's involuntary. It's something that is happening to them. It's something that we can't control. I mean, we can suppress it, but it's something that we can't control. And most people have learned to become fearful of, of, of losing control. Now, for example, there are special times when, when we do let go of control. So one example is at the height of orgasm. Right. And again, very often you see shaking and trembling, uh, uh, sensations of warmth and cold going through the body, usually ending with it, 
beautiful feeling of warmth and, and goodness throughout our whole body. And so that's a time when it's, when it's acceptable, at least to some people. But outside of that, you know, if we're shaking in, in public, we're thinking, oh, what are, going to people, what are people going to think about this? Or why am I doing this? And so we don't, we, we interfere with it. It would be wonderful if children were taught by their adults, by their parents. Actually, I wrote two books just on that purpose. One for parents called Trauma Proofing Your Kids. When an accident happens and the parent can be uh, with the child and sit by the child, the child will shake and tremble, will often cry, will often be angry. And the, if the parent says to the child, that's okay. That's just let that happen, sweetheart. I'm right here with you. Then the child will shake and tremble. Their nervous system will reset. And if they're not physically injured, off they'll go back to play as though nothing had happened. So this is something that we really need to unlearn. Uh, and again, I think this is part of our over-socialization, our over-civilizating um, where it takes away that which is spontaneous. And that which is spontaneous is also what takes us towards spiritual and mystical experiences. So in that way, trauma and spirituality, you know, really come together. Now you hinted that you have some theories about why the supportive person being there makes such a difference. Can you give me a sense of that? When we're experiencing fear and shaking and trembling, even if there's no actual threat, we perceive there's an actual threat, right? In other words, okay, a bear comes after us and we're cornered against the wall and we're terrified, obviously. But then the bear, for some reason, decides to just go back, leave you alone. So you're there absolutely terrified, shaking and trembling. Now, you know the bear might come back, right? So the last thing you're going to want to do is close your eyes, go inside your body, and connect with your body sensations. You have to stay alert because there's the danger could, ha- could happen again. Now, if there's somebody with you, then that person will be kind of looking out for you. So even though there's no actual source of threat, there's just the shaking and the trembling, having the person with you says, okay, there's somebody there that will protect me. And this goes, of course, all the way back to our childhood, that we hopefully have parents who give us that feeling that, they're, that if we're frightened, that they're there for us, and they'll, they'll hold us, they'll sit by us. So for these reasons, uh, it really helps to have another person. Although, you know, in some fright, I mean, many, many times we're, you know, we're frightened or something makes us angry, um, you know, just, you know, that's not such a big deal. We're, we're aware of the sensations. We're aware of the feelings associated with those sensations and the sensations pass. But where we're really, you know, seriously challenged, seriously, uh, you know, overwhelmed, then it really makes the big difference to have that other person there to give us the sense of protection. When the pediatrician was there by my side, sitting by my side, I mean, obviously she wasn't going to protect me from being hit by the car, but the feeling of her being there was that I was being protected and I could allow 
these spontaneous things to happen and track them knowing that she was there at my side. Now, Peter, I'm sure this is something that you've thought a lot about, even in just the discussion of trauma, the way we're talking about it here. I could imagine somebody listening who might feel activated, quote unquote, in a certain kind of way. Do you know what I mean? Sure. What would you suggest to that person who's listening, who might be feeling um, a sense of their own trauma kind of coming up? Yeah, uh, absolutely. This is a great opportunity uh, for anybody who feels some kind of upset or uh, remembering of some kind of trauma to notice, of course, we're here, we're not back there, and that as you're listening to our voices, um, to just take a moment to just notice where in your body you feel the uncomfortableness and what does it feel like? Do you feel a knot in your gut, in your belly? Do you feel your heart racing? Do you feel short of breath? So whatever it is, without trying to change it, to just noticing it. And let's just say you're feeling a knot in your belly. Here's a simple exercise you can do. When you feel the knot in your belly, just ask yourself, what does this knot look like? What would be an image, a metaphor for that knot? So somebody might see a closed fist. Somebody might see a, a, a band of, of iron around the belly. Somebody might feel, if might see something twisting in their guts. So then whatever it is that you're noticing and whatever picture you have in your mind's eye about this knot or about the racing heart, just ask yourself this question and don't try to give yourself the answer, but just let the answer jump out because it could be anything. It could be a waterfall, it could be a watermelon seed, it could be a house, a meadow, a person, an animal. Look at this image, so let's just say it's a closed fist, and just ask yourself, what's the opposite image? And just let that jump out like a jumping jack jumps out of a box. What comes from your unconscious? What's the spontaneous image? Now, as you see that picture, that image, just go back and forth between that image and whatever you're feeling now in your body. And something like that usually helps the person move out of the stuck place. See, really, trauma is about stuckness. We're stuck with these sensations. We're stuck with these feelings. We're stuck with these beliefs. But if we can make contact with how we're stuck in our bodies, then we begin to move through. Uh, there are a lot of exercises that you can practice so that you go through these uncomfortable sensations and return back feeling stronger and more alive. And I imagine that many of you already who have done that little exercise right now today may be feeling that sense of relief, that sense that even if we're feeling uncomfortable and constricted, that with just a little bit of focus, a little bit of time, maybe a little bit of shaking and trembling, finding a spon- our spontaneous breath that comes back, feeling our hands go from cold to warm, feeling an easy, full, spontaneous breath, 
again, without trying, by just noticing, by just becoming aware of the sensations and how they naturally shift in time, how they contract, how they expand, how you begin to feel again more solid in your own body, in your own organisms. You, you mentioned, Peter, how much you learned from watching animals and how animals shake off trauma. But yet we're like animals, I mean, we're mammals, but we're also human beings who have special capacities, capacities of awareness and reflection. What's the difference in how a human needs to process trauma or can process trauma from an animal? Yeah, very good question. Um, the animals do this, relative to humans at least, without much conscious reflection. So if an animal is injured, it may shake and tremble and then, you know, go to hide so it's not, so it's not uh, you know, eaten by a predator. Um, but we assume that animals don't have reflective self-awareness to the way we do. Now, this is both a, an asset and it also can be a liability. So, for example, if a rabbit escapes, it doesn't think, wow, what if I didn't escape? What if I were eaten, right? It, yeah. Again, the, it, the event is over. But with our frontal reasoning uh, you know, primate brain, human brain, we have so much more computing power there that we so easily uh, bring back the event in our mind's eye, we keep replaying it. And what if I didn't escape? And what if this happens again? So that's the, the downside of the highly cerebralized reason, reasoning brain. The other part is that it is what is our ally that says, okay, wait a minute, there is a way out of this. You don't have to be stuck with it. If you just go in and begin to contact your sensation in this particular way, then let's just see what happens. Let's just see if you don't just move through it. So we really need to enlist our, our, our cognitive brain in the service of our sanity rather than as being uh, a, a, a virulent factor in our, our unsanity. <laughs> Now, the work that you teach is called somatic experiencing, meaning, you know, experience this physically, the release of trauma. How do you feel about approaches to trauma relief that aren't physically based, meaning you go, you talk to a therapist, you describe what happened, but you're not necessarily working at a physiological level. You're not shaking. Do you think those approaches are just not effective? Well, they can be helpful for, for just the reason that we were talking about. Remember, the brain, the frontal brain kind of keeps, you know, bringing up these depressing facts for us to uh, beat ourselves over the head with. And so some cognitive therapy can be of, of, of help there. And, you know, when I work with somebody, I mean, I do also work with their thoughts and I work with their perceptions. Uh, but if that's all it does then it really doesn't change the fundamental imbalance which is in the nervous system, which is in the body. 
let me give you an, also an example where in just in insight therapy where it can actually uh, make things worse. Okay, so you have a symptom. And the symptom is that when you see a shadow uh, or you're walking at dusk, uh, you're really jumping. And if somebody comes up behind you, you're paralyzed. You're terrified. So you go and talk about this and you make a connection with being, uh, being raped 12 years ago. So now you know why you have this reaction. So you're invited to a friend's house for a party. You're excited to go. And you're walking and it's, it's dusk. And somebody is walking behind you and again you panic. And you want to go to the party but you're afraid of being at the party because you're feeling so out of yourself so in other words, what happens is if after we know why it happened and then it happens and we can't stop it, we may actually feel worse. We may be even more self-critical to ourselves. So, I mean, I'm convinced that as, as far as trauma goes, that, that any therapy that doesn't work with the body really has an inherent weakness. And I also don't want to say that therapies that don't work with the body can't be of, of value because they definitely can. But to really have a lasting transformation of trauma, uh, it's something that, um, that has to come from the body. And it, it has to come from, you know, from this deep part in ourselves. There's a, a hexagram in the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes. It's, I think it's hexagram 34 called The Well. It says, we must go down to the very foundations of life for any merely superficial ordering of life that leaves its deepest needs unsatisfied is as ineffectual as if no attempt in order had ever been made. So I see that as, you know, speaking to this, we can do things, we can put patches on it, we can make the person feel better. Uh, certain drugs sometimes are given that may or may not make the person feel better. But until we really get to the underlying ordering of things, then really we haven't gotten, we haven't found the solution. Now, another thing also that sometimes therapists can provide by being empathic and helping to create an environment of relative safety, they can help the person calm. But as soon as they leave, then they feel again thrown back into the into the ravages of trauma. They, you know, their heart rate goes up, their mind is racing, um, and they become more and more dependent on the therapist because it's only when they're with the therapist that they feel some kind of safety and calm. So for trauma therapy helping to create this environment of relative safety, yes, that's absolutely essential. But if it's all that the therapist does, then it leaves the client more and more dependent on them. So really what they have to do is help give the client tools so that the clients are self-empowered to deal with these uncomfortable situations or these uncomfortable sensations that occur when they're not in the therapy 
situation. So this is very important that, that trauma therapists both have this sense of uh, containment and stability and groundedness like the pediatrician who sat by my side, but they also know how to help the clients develop their tools for self-healing. And you've mentioned a couple times using the kinds of tools you've described like letting go of this contraction in the gut and other techniques that there'll be a shift in our nervous system. And I'm curious if you can just give me a little insight into your understanding of how the work that you teach rebalances the nervous system. Well, again, this goes back to the fact that animals in the wild, not in a laboratory situation or a domestic situation, they probably rarely, if ever, get traumatized. Again, because if it was a, a routine occurrence, they wouldn't survive and the species wouldn't survive. Okay, so there has to be something that's built into their nervous systems and into our nervous system because we share, remember, the same part of the brain, the brainstem, the hypothalamus, the limbic system, all of this and it has to do with survival. We have just about exactly the same brain parts as they do. So this mechanism is an eight. It's used by the animals without the animals thinking that they need to use it. But we have the very same thing. And again, we need to usually enlist our higher reasoning parts of our brain to remind ourselves that we are also like the animals, that we also have the innate capacity to rebound from overwhelming events and to reset our nervous system so we go on with life and feeling more empowered and not constantly being brought back to the trauma. This is something that's inbuilt, that it's in our nervous system. And what we have to learn, what we can learn, is to not interfere with that. So I'm going to say this maybe one more time, is that what happens is because of our fear of the involuntary, we block the very sensations, the very reactions that are innately constructed to do just what they do, which is to reset our nervous systems, to reset our autonomic reactions, and to increase our resiliency in doing that. That's how we are. That's how we're wired. We're wired to not become traumatized, but we need assistance to actually activate that. Now, Peter, the difficulty here is I have so many things I want to ask you, but I'm not going to, but I do. And uh, I think that means that I should attend the online course that you're offering through Sounds True, so I'll, I'll get a chance to hear and learn more and to let our listeners know that that starts at SoundsTrue.com on September 20th, a complete online course on Peter Levine's work with healing trauma. But I am going to sneak in uh, two final questions. Now, you mentioned uh, your new book, and it has this very intriguing title, In an Unspoken Voice. Can you give me some insight into that title? Yeah, um, that's what we've been talking about. It's the, the wisdom of our bodies that in order to uh, become immune from trauma, in order to rebound from trauma, we need to listen to the voice of our bodies, the nonverbal, 
voice of our bodies. And it's this way of learning that wisdom that comes from direct experience. It comes from the sensations that occur within us. Very good. That's clear. And then here's just my final question for you, Peter. I know you've done a lot of work with different populations, working with people who have come back from battle, from war, people who have been tsunami and hurricane victims, all different kinds of populations. And I'm curious if you hold a vision for how your work and the the work of healing trauma could manifest in the world. Yeah. Let me give you a specific example, because I, I could say it somewhat in his words. Maybe that would be revealing. Recently, I did some pro bono work for a uh, Marine uh, returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was blown up by two of these bombs that are along the road that were very close to him and very close to each other. And he woke, he was in coma for a week and woke up in the hospital in uh, Lonstrop, Germany. And we did five sessions. And you see him going from being completely destroyed to this positive, self-secure human being. And an interviewer asked him, what would you like to tell to the people who are responsible for the, the mental health, the care of returning soldiers? And you could see he looked inward, he reflected, and he said in this very, very calm, present voice, he said, I would tell them to look beyond just giving drugs and to see that there are ways that people can really be helped to come back from these devastating events. And this is something that we need, it seems, more than ever. Um, You know, in times of crisis, it seems like there's always been a parallel development in creative avenues and creative solutions. And we've seen such a recent devastation. I guess the most uh, recent example is this, this horrendous oil spill where the lives of so many people and so many animals as being ripped apart. We need to have these tools so that we can move back in life, so that we can be effective. Because if we become paralyzed by these events, then we don't, we're not able to change them. So really, I see this kind of work as being a very important part of social change in general. I think this is, again, a part that's been missing in many social change movements because people need to be empowered. If you're just yelling and screaming and throwing rocks, that's not going to change anything. But when we find both our unspoken voice and our spoken voice coming from that unspoken voice, then we're able to affect real change in, 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 in society. At least that's, what I, that's my experience and that's my, my enduring belief. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Peter Levine. Peter will be offering an online course in his work with healing trauma beginning at soundstrue.com on September 20th. And as I said, Peter, I'm, I'm going to participate. I want to learn more about your work. I feel so gifted that you're a part of what we're doing here at Sounds True. I think it has such incredible impact on individuals yeah. and the well, world. Well, you know, Thank it's you. been a pleasure and really, you know... Um, Sounds true to a very significant degree has helped me with my vision of getting these kinds of things out to the to the general public. 
so that people can use these tools and share these tools with their with their loved ones, with their families, with their friends. So so I thank you thank for you, that Peter. opportunity. Thank you, Peter. We have a, a book CD at Sounds True on healing trauma. And Peter has also created a program called It Won't Hurt Forever, which is an audio program that guides children through the recovery of trauma, as well as a program on sexual trauma, Healing the Sacred Wound, and again, the online course that begins on September 20th. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.